You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fong. So the same Welcome all to this week's Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm going to be your host this week. I'm David Grubbs. You'll note that I am not Nathan Gilmore because this is not an episode about Top Gun. Uh, You'll also note that this is not Tuesday when you're listening to it. It's Thursday because if you look at your calendar, it's March the 17th. It's St. Patrick's Day. And so we figured we'd take a break from the regularly scheduled program to uh, give a salute to... St. Patrick, patron saint of Ireland and 5th century missionary. This is also episode 184.1. It's a decimal episode, which means we're missing uh, missing one of the triumvirate. In this particular case, it's Michael Farmer, wasn't able to be here today. So today it's just me and Nathan Gilmore, associate professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How are you this morning? I'm doing well. We have been decimated, so we're doing a decimal episode. Uh, <laughs> and, and listeners, you will be able to score points with us if you can say what decimated means in its historical context rather than its popular conversational context. Uh, I am on spring break this week, uh, which, you know, when you're in a family with two teachers whose spring breaks fall in different months, that basically means that I've been... Uh, Cleaning house, grading, catching up on some Christian humanist profiles, reading that I let languish on my desk for entirely too long. But I haven't had to commute to work for uh, four days now, and that's glorious. Mm. Awesome. Well, uh, this is also my spring break week when when the episode drops. So, you know, as you're listening to it now, dear listener, I am on spring break. Also happening uh, on March the 17th, uh, as you're listening to this, uh, dear listener, uh, my wife, Katie Grubbs, who you've you've heard on the Christian Feminist podcast, is in Athens, Georgia, defending her doctoral dissertation. Oh, she's so, defending it on St. Patrick's Day? Yes, she is. That's... Excellent. I defend it on Valentine's Day, so. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't remember whether or not the day I defended had any particular you know, liturgical calendar so, significance. So Katie and I both defended on big Hallmark card days. Basically. <laughs> I might have defended on the Ides of March. I don't know. Oh, there I you go. <laughs> I can't remember. Um, yeah, they were thinking about scheduling it for the Tuesday, but then Katie thought, wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> the Ides of March. There's something ominous about that. So anyway, dear listener, if you're, um, you know, if, if you could take a few moments and uh, offer up some prayers for my wife, um, we would appreciate that very, uh, very much. She's been working on this for a long time. Um, now, of course, that means that she's in Georgia with two out of the three of our offspring. And so I am in Houston with um, the one that the one that she didn't take. So so we're we're having having fun times this week. Right on. 
It's also Which my mother-in-law's next... birthday. I should just go ahead and mention since we're doing March 17th things. <laughs> so happy birthday to, to Nate. Sue Bird, yes. <laughs> um, Michael is uh, Michael's not here. We didn't want to do the Top Gun episode without him also. So, you know, look forward to that. <laughs> uh, look forward to that next time. So it's St. Patrick's Day, and I figure, do you do anything for St. Patrick's Day, Nathan? Oh, honestly, I mean, it, it kind of depends on the year. I mean, if it falls on a weekend, we might go to, you know, restaurants that are doing St. Patrick's Day specials and whatnot. But, I mean, since we have young kids, as do you, uh, you know, the old scene of, you know, going for the green beer uh, really isn't on my horizon <laughs> anymore. That and also, I should note, for the uh, sake of my employer, I'm also under con- contractual obligation not to uh, imbibe the green beer. So I stay away from that for uh, professional reasons. Emmanuel College, I have put it on public record. <laughs> um, I am not contractually obligated to abstain from the green beer, um, but personally, that's that's not my jam. So, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, no, St. Patrick's Day for all my life has been the day in which you wear green because there will be someone who who who, who pinches you. Right, right, and I bought an obnoxious uh, dollar store. Uh, green and white and orange hat that I wear if I have classes to teach on St. Patrick's Day, which I will this year. So, uh, you know, my my <laughs> literary theory students and my advanced composition students have that to look forward to, I suppose. Awesome. So why do we have this Catholic feast day on our American calendars, if, if not the official government calendars, at least on, you know, the calendars that you buy at the store. Why do we have that and not like the clearly more awesome St. David's Day, which is, you know, March 1st? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, part of the reason is that uh, we had a lot more uh, Irish immigrants in the 19th century than we had Israeli. Um, (laughs) And, you know, uh, this is one of the stories of Americans learning to live better with their neighbors. Uh, In the first half of the 19th century, there was an influx of Irish immigrants uh, a lot of them Protestant, uh, which is why we have, you know, especially in the uh, southeastern region, uh, Scots-Irish. Uh, that honestly is a little bit of a joke. Uh, that basically meant Protestant-Irish back in the 19th century. Those were the good Irish people, the ones you could <laughs> trust. Then there were the Boston-Irish. These folks were Roman Catholic, which made them automatically suspicious to Americans because they did things like celebrate Christmas uh, which was, you know, a big no-no among Puritans and among Enlightenment deists. Um, and, you know, honestly, this was a relationship uh, that I actually got into with uh, Stephen Prothero in a recent Christian Humanist Profiles um, that got violent. I mean, you know, uh, churches got burnt down, convents got burnt down, children were kidnapped so that, you know, they could be raised upright and not indoctrinated into papism. Uh, it was an ugly, ugly time in American history. Not the only ugly, ugly time, and not the only way in which the first half of the 19th century was ugly, ugly, ugly. But certainly it was a violent time. So in the latter decades of the 19th century, St. Patrick's Day became one of the ways, certainly not the only way, uh, in which Protestant America and Irish Catholic America started to make nice. Uh, Mm. We would all have a green beer together, and celebrate Ireland and say, you know, it's 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 okay that you're Irish. 
uh, and we like you, we like having you here. And by the way, thank you for building the Midwest. So, um, you know, that's the <laughs> thanks that's, for the Midwest. Yeah, that's 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 really the roots of you know the St. Patrick the, the prominence. I'll put it that way of St. Patrick's Day as opposed to other saints' days on the American calendar. Um, are, are there any other historical bits that you'd want to throw in there, David? I mean, just just kind of playing off of that. Uh, one of the reasons why uh, I happen to I happen to like St. Patrick's Day in a way that I don't um, Valentine's Day is because St. Patrick's Day is kind of a is kind of a reminder that um, there aren't really, in a certain historical sense, white people. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> that that there is, you know, that there are these, you know, historical, you know, differences of ethne um that uh that have made a historical difference in the past and while they might might not be making the same kind of waves where we live here and now, um it does it doesn't make them unimportant. Um in ways that sometimes get glossed over in the ways that that race is talked about in in our day right right and I, and I would tweak that just a little bit to say that uh, in the 19th century there weren't white people the way that there are white people now because as, as late as the late 19th century if you go back to the congressional record you can find this there were congressional hearings to determine whether Irish people in in basically for the sake of legal rights and representations were white or whether they weren't yeah. Uh, so, I mean, you know, again, I mean, you know, ugly, ugly moment, but also fascinating because in that moment, at least, not to be of English or German descent called into question your whiteness, irrespective mm. of the fact that, I mean, you know, uh, there's not many ethnicities on the planet that, uh, you know, have less of a tan than I do. The Irish <laughs> happen to be one of them. <laughs> awesome. Well, we're not going to be dealing with uh, 20th or 21st or even 19th century racial politics this morning because we wanted to to get at uh, not St. Patrick's Day now, but some actual St. Patrick material. Mm -hmm. uh, so in instead of uh, thinking about today as uh, everyone's favorite Darby O'Gill's Little People themed holiday, <laughs> um, we figured we'd, we'd look at some of the texts that, uh, so far as I can tell, are, are pretty firmly considered to be authentic, authentically from the pen and from the heart of, uh, of the man himself, Patricius, the British uh, missionary to Ireland. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at uh, a text called, uh, often called the Confession. Confessio is, is just its Latin title, um, though declaration is sometimes used uh, as a as a translation for that, and his epistola, his letter, um, sometimes expanded to letter to Caroticus or letter to the soldiers of Caroticus. But I figure we probably need some historical context on this. So, what kinds of things do we need to know about Patrick's world to make sense of these texts as we get into them? All right. So one interesting bit, uh, and it's something that I'd forgotten until I started rereading the Confession for this podcast. Uh, is that Patrick is the son of a priest, and he didn't have to call him his nephew. Uh, this was an era before the mandatory celibacy of the priesthood. Uh, and, you know, one, one of the things that 
is very, very notable about the Confessio is that Patrick regards the church in Britain in his childhood to be almost lapsed at the very least backslidden. Uh, mm -hmm. And yet the celibacy of the priesthood is not something that he really points out as a sign of that corruption. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I mean, that, that, that's a fascinating little historical bit in its own right. Um, you know, we're talking about, uh, roughly speaking, uh, the, and I got to do, do my uh, century math here, is it <laughs> the 6th century? Uh, we're the 5th. Yeah, we're in the we're in the fifth century. We're in the four hundreds. Son 400s. of a gun! I always get that wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We know we're we're in the four hundreds. A lot of interesting stuff is going down um, in this century. That... Right, right. Yeah. So I mean, what you know, what I found interesting about this, and again, I the the math. I should have written this down before the episode started, so I wouldn't have to do math on the fly. But <laughs> uh, Patrick is someone who is very nearly contemporary with St. Augustine. So we're not really talking about a medieval figure, uh, even though, you know, a lot of folks, you know, think of St. Patrick's traditions as arising out of the medieval period, and I'm sure we'll talk about that mm -hmm. at some point. Um, but we're really talking about uh, someone from the patristic era, but instead of operating in Syria or Egypt or, uh, you know, North Africa, as Augustine did, uh, he is someone who is operating really in the extreme northwest of the known world. Mm -hmm. So uh, one of the really striking features, again, as I'm rereading this material, is that you've got a very different power dynamic going on. One of the characteristics of the early saints' lives uh, is that you tend to have sort of a clash of gods narrative that seems to be modeled after... Exodus, to be sure, but even more so the book of Daniel, uh, where you have the wicked king with his wicked god facing the powerless but faithful martyr uh, who refuses to abandon the god. In this one, the uh, Picts, uh, which tend to be the you know bad guys of choice, really don't seem to have that much interest in getting people to recant their faith. They're more interested in mugging them and taking their cash. Uh, so... It's a very different kind of saint story, a very different kind of martyr story. I mean, David, as you read, I mean, how would you characterize, you know, the main bad guys in Patrick's narrative? Well, this is, uh, it, it's really interesting because this is the one of the moments where we've got some kind of overlap in stories um, or in, in, in accounts that we get from, uh, in the at, kind of at the beginning of the next century, we have uh, Gildas. Mm -hmm. um, in Britain, writing about the the ruin of Britain at the hands of these various, um, you know, barbarians from from the Saxon the Saxon shore. Um, this is around the time that, according to Gildas's account and according to Bede, you know, Britain British uh, provisional uh, rulers are beginning to, uh, according to according to Bede. Um, Higher ang uh, angles and Saxons to serve as uh, as soldiery to to bo boost the um, the British forces as they resist the Picts coming coming down from Scotland and and also raiders from Ireland as well. Um, things are not going well in Rome. Four ten is when Vis uh, you know Visigoth sacked it and Augustine started his City of God mm -hmm. um, in order to to handle that. Um, so we're, we're talking about 
Roman Britain that's slowly becoming post-Roman Britain as Rome becomes more and more concerned with its own troubles. Mm. Uh, Attila comes to Rome in this in this uh, in this century. Uh, we've got Leo the Great, uh, Leo the First, the 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 Pope who essentially stares down Attila, um, is is operating in this century. Theodoric comes to power at the end of this century. Uh, so so a lot of a lot of stuff that's going on in Europe as Rome fades and as this new situation of what becomes you know kind of more typically medieval Europe. This is this is what's um, this is what's happening, and so we're getting to see some of that over on that far western edge of the empire as Western Britain is becoming more and more um, more and more open to the incursions of, of, of those peoples who are who were beyond the control of, of Rome. Mm-hmm. Um, Rome is not there to back them up. Right, right. And this is one of those centuries I, I, I often tell my students that uh, someday when I have the uh, confidence that people will actually enroll in the class, I'd like to do a class just on the 14th century just because of all the interesting stuff that's happening across theology, literature, philosophy, politics, so on and so forth. I, I think the 5th century is another one that, that would bear some really, you know, cross-disciplinary study because, you know, a lot of times you study St. Augustine in isolation from St. Patrick, in isolation from Attila the Hun, so on and so forth. Yep. Um, in in isolation from Gregory the Great, let's not forget that you already mentioned him, and you know it, it it strikes me that some of these connections often get neglected when we do study these folks in isolation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's uh, sorry, Leo uh, was was who I said, but um, you know, yeah, you've got Augustine Augustine versus Pelagius is going down here, John Chrysostom. Um, is kind of finishing up his career. Jerome is kicking around in this century. You know, it's a, a, just a lot of stuff is is going down. So oh, you're right, Gregory the Great. And I'm sorry, I just punched him up. He's a he's a sixth century figure. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, he's he's dealing with the situation that that this century puts into play, so to speak. Right, right. Um. Anyway, it's it's. I think it's worthwhile to put it in all of this in all of that context because because you're right. So often I think we we associate Saint Patrick and saints like him with the Middle Ages, but that's not actually how he, he would he wouldn't have known he was in the middle. He would have told you he was at the end. Right. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. Awesome. So let's start with the confession. One of the things that's interesting, I think, about this text is its genre. So he's chosen a he's chosen a a particular way of writing, um, a way of presenting himself and his ministry to his readers. So, what are his goals? Um, how, and how are they shaping the way he presents his presents himself? Um, how is genre and self presentation going on here? Well, first of all, you know, the the Confessio, uh, that title, although it might not be original with Patrick, is not a coincidence either because this is a story that begins in the youth of the writer. 
Uh, it's a story that is, you know, a presentation to God of the works that he has done with his life. So there's definitely a sense in here of gratitude, but also of self-justification. And, and mm-hmm. I, I only say self-justification, not because Patrick thinks he's justified himself. So listeners don't write that email just yet. <laughs> But because he is, in fact, writing down his own story as well as the story of the expansion of the gospel in Ireland. Mm. Um, So in other words, he does take a fair bit of time to talk about a sin from his youth. Um, I I, I was guessing at what the heck he did the whole time, and I don't think he ever comes (laughs) out and says what he did. Um, But something that, you know, was public enough or publicly known enough uh, the people had questions about his going back to Ireland as a missionary. They they posed the question, should a man such as you, because of what you did when you were young, go back to Ireland? And his response is really rooted in the narrative of grace and forgiveness from the Christian gospel, uh, that I have been restored to righteousness, not by my own merit, but by Christ's. Mm. Uh, and therefore, I should go and you know extend the same to the people of Ireland. Uh, the other thing that's notable about this text is that this really is a transitional text. I, I, I said earlier it's not a medieval text in its own right, um, but the episode uh, that stood out to me from the actual ministry uh, is when a member of the royal family, a princess of Ireland, uh, converts mm-hmm. to the faith, becomes a nun, uh, and it's really that event that the way that Patrick tells the story sets things into motion for Ireland to be Christianized. I bring that up because when you get to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, when you get to the Venerable Bede, you really do get a sense that this pattern of going to the people in temporal authority so that the message can disseminate to the people becomes a pattern in a way that you really don't see, for instance, in the book of Acts and the New Testament or um, or really, I mean, in the, the martyr's tales that we talked about earlier, uh, in the sort of high imperial period of Rome, in those, you get a lot more of a sense that this is a movement that starts with women and slaves. And then eventually it becomes so compelling that the aristocracy, the nobility sort of follow the lead of the lowly by this time, by the time you get to Patrick, by the time you get to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, uh, the motion sort of reverses people are going into areas uh, where there is not a prior people's movement or peasants movement or slave movement of Christianity. Uh, And therefore it makes some sense to them to go to the people in power uh, Mm -hmm. who can actually have the resources to get this message out among the people to establish monasteries and other institutions of missionary work. And, you know, There was a time when I was a younger man and before I spent a decade studying Old English that I would have said this is a sign that the church had sold out somehow, that they had become (laughs) Constantinian. Uh, I I have either become a greater sinner, I won't discount that possibility, or I have become, I guess, a a little bit uh, broader-minded in my imagination of church history. I, I think that this was a different way of going about things for a different moment. Uh, David, what do you think? I mean, I, I know you probably didn't have that, uh, strong Anabaptist moment that I did that you're, uh, recovering from. Well, I, 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 I will admit that one of the things that I, I found off putting when I first started looking in the, uh, the sort of late, 
late Roman, early medieval era of 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 mission work amongst, um, you know, the the, the barbarians at the periphery. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that tactic of going to the king and 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 in some ways working from the top down, um, that does produce some ugly moments, especially in. Um, you know, especially what in what came to be called France, um, in the in the conversion of the of the Franks, and in the ways that you know Frankish clerics then uh, then moved in their missionary work to uh, de- dealing with um, the various peoples that we would now call Germans, um, you know, uh, people like Saint Boniface. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, some of the some some of that mission work. Um, looks pretty awesome and seems to track pretty close with the way Axe talks about mission work. But then they've also got Frankish soldiers, and and part of part of the you know they've got a king who sees their mission work as part of pacifying the um, the outliers, so to speak. Um, now Patrick's not in that position though. He he doesn't have an army backing him up. Right. Right. And. While he does manage to to you know, <laughs> while he does manage to convert a princess, um, he does talk a good bit about uh, his his work in Ireland being with slaves and women, and and people who who weren't who weren't in power who then had to endure um, hardship as a result of their conversions, mm-hmm. but also as a result of their decision to um, become virgins of the church. Right, right, and he, and he at the very least implies, and I, I wish the dude would state some things. I really do, <laughs> but he at the very least yeah. implies that this uh, Irish princess is disowned by her family for becoming a nun. Yeah, what, dear dear listeners, um, this is worth reading. It's not super long. It's it's pretty clear, and we'll post links um, when you get to it. But one of the frustrating things, you know, as you've as you just point pointed out, Nathan, is that Patrick often seems to assume that you know what he's talking about. Right. He's doing commentary on a history you've already read, except that you haven't. Right. Um, which to me is 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 one of the one of the things in the text that convinces me of its authenticity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's it's not overdetermined. Um, it, in, in that way, it feels um, it feels like reading. Uh, it feels like reading Paul's epistle to the Galatians, where you know there's this active situation going on that Paul's readers knew about, and so he's just going to gesture at it. Right, <laughs> right. It, it is, yeah, likely authentic, and it is certainly authentically frustrating at times. <laughs> um, one of the things in terms of genre that it se- it seems to me that he's doing is a, is a kind of defense of his ministry. Mm-hmm. Um uh, a defense of himself as when when he deals with that that sin that you talked about earlier, but also um, a, a defense of the authenticity of the power of of his ministry, and in that way it reminds me of some of the moves that uh, Paul makes in, you know, some in First Corinthians, but especially in Second Corinthians. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Um, where he's where Patrick, like Paul. Is is defending his um, his apostleship, so to speak, um, defending his calling uh, because his character has been questioned. Also, apparently, his education has been questioned, and so 
there there's a selection um a selectiveness in his autobiography that's meant i think simultaneously to acknowledge that no i'm not <laughs> i'm not a top tier pick <laughs> mm-hmm. you know uh, but at the same time god is has uh worked in my life and has intervened at particular points to to show that that his hand is on me um uh, his continual emphasis on the role of the Holy Spirit as as animating, as moving his ministry and his preaching um, as the thing that uh, that offsets his own his own personal weaknesses. Uh, he's he's saying with Paul, Christ is being my strength and weakness. So I don't see what you guys have to complain about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well. In this, uh, in this, he he confession. He free, he he talks about coming to the Irish people to spread the faith, to preach Christ, to preach the gospel. And whenever I read one of these early missionary accounts, I'm always interested, um, as I think Christians ought to be, and and as, especially Protestants are. Right? Um, we're really interested in what's the gospel you preach. Mm-hmm. So far as you can tell, can can we excavate this text and find um, Patrick's gospel? What faith he confesses, what good news he witnesses to? Yeah, I mean, part of the work of church history, especially when you're dealing with the writings of Christian writers, is that you need to pay attention to the rhetorical notion of kairos. Um, Kairos and Kronos, for those of you who have not had a an intro to rhetorical theory course, uh, are two Greek words, each of which you could reasonably translate as time. But Kronos is the succession of moments and hours and days and months. It's the regular passage of time. It is something that you can measure. Uh, it is something you can anticipate. Kairos, on the other hand, uh, has to do more with a moment a moment of importance, a moment of opportunity, something that can't be foreseen, but with the right kind of education and the right sort of experience and perhaps the right sort of uh, inborn natural talent, if you're reading Cicero, uh, you can seize hold of. And those are the moments in the course of your life and in the moments of human history where you can actually affect real change. That doesn't happen every chronological second. But when the moment arrives, you really do have opportunity to change something. I bring that up because when you look at, for instance, the, the letters of St. Paul, the kairos there seems to be that you have people from all nations, some of which, like the Greeks and the Jews, who think of themselves as the real people and everyone else as ethni or goyim or Gentiles, um, coming together and being in this moment where because of the resurrection of Christ, that previous division between the insiders and the outsiders is breaking down, and everyone universally gets invited into this insider status. Mm. On the other hand, when you look at you know the epistle of 1 John, the kairos there seems to be that you have this religious environment, and whether you want to say that he's writing to proto-Gnostics or unnamed Gnostics or whatever, whatever you want to call 1 John's enemies, they seem to be promulgating a mystery religion of some sort to where some people are initiated into it and some people aren't. Uh, and 
if you are one of the outsiders there, uh, well then, you know, you'll just have to settle for Jesus. But if you have the real good stuff, then you can have real contact with God. And First John, as a letter, um, comes at it and says, you know, and honestly, this is one of the, the, the passages that I think people get over anxious about because they don't read it in its kairos. John says, for the one who follows Christ, you do not miss the mark. You do not hamartia. Now, unfortunately, the English word sin we think of as a discrete act of wrongdoing. So people get bent out of shape and say, but after I got baptized, I still lusted after my neighbors. Okay, okay. First of all, I don't want to hear about that. But second of all, <laughs> um, you know, what John is offering there is a word of comfort. You're already there. If you've got Christ, there is no level 10 that you advance to. You're already there, man. You've already been given the very essence of God in the love of Christ. You haven't missed the mark. Stop worrying, right? Luke, if you think about his kairos, uh, his emphasis in his narratives on shepherds and women and tax collectors and lepers demonstrates that, again, you've got this universal invitation. Even those people who, because of their circumstances within that Greco-Roman context, will never be on the inside, Christ says, no, you're already on the inside because I say so, okay? Now, to turn from the New Testament to the confession of Patrick, the kairos here seems to be the ongoing warfare in the British islands. Uh, you've got all of the tribes that, uh, you know, bead names in the prologue to the ecclesiastical history. You've got the, the Picts and the Scots and the English and the Britons and all of these warring tribes that are, you know, basically exploiting anyone they can to get the resources to feed their armies so that they can keep waging their wars. What Patrick presents, and this is very cool, and again, if you read it in its context, it's not nearly as monstrous as it would be if you read it in more of a 21st century American context, but he says, there is one God who is Lord over all, you are hereby part of that God's kingdom, and therefore anything that these other people do to you uh, is a crime against that one God for which they will pay. Mm. Now, again, if you read this, you know, from the perspective of, you know, the world's premier military superpower, and you say anyone who crosses one of us is going to pay in a fiery explosion of drone attacks, that's monstrous. In their moment, though, when you've got this unknown British preacher coming to them, you know, I mean, let, let's be honest, it could be days after or hours after a tribe of marauding Picts or a tribe of marauding Britons has burnt down their village and says there is a true king and his vengeance will be known. That's a profound moment of good news. That is something mm. that you say not to, you know, Job at the top of the world, but Job on his ash heap. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, one of the things that is missing, if you think that this is the only thing that Christianity can say, is that, you know, the main aim of Christianity is to identify with Christ on the cross. You're not going to find that in the writing of St. Patrick. At least I didn't find it there. David, you can correct me in a bit if I'm wrong. <laughs> but these folks are already on crosses. Not literally, maybe, but certainly in the circumstances of their lives, they are the downtrodden, they are the weak, uh, you know, they are the folks who don't know justice because as these people are, you know, waging their endless wars, um, there is no safe place. Patrick comes to them and says, 
the safe place is the justice and the judgment of King Jesus. What would you add to all that, David? I like that because, well, what what you've done, um, dear listeners, is is built the bridge between uh, Patrick's confession and his epistle to Caroticus. Um, which you know, I, I I'd like to I'd like to camp out on a little bit more later, mm-hmm. but uh, I I see that as the text in which he really gives gives those ideas of the the ways that the the alteration of status um, of of human to to maker then then makes these these other um, these other commensurate mm-hmm. <laughs> alterations of status between man and man and the way that that the way that that ought to play out and the way that that's good news mm-hmm. um, I, I I think you I think you really see that in um, you really see that in the epistle to Caroticus when he's he's insisting on um, the ways that things need to be different now because the gospel has come to the Irish. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think it's important to um, to pay attention to a couple of points in the text where he he undertakes what what looks like confession, not in the sense of admitting his sins, but in the sense of de- of of um, declaring his faith um, with the church of the of of uh, of the centuries. Mm-hmm. I mean, early on, uh, he says he talks about uh, being able to confess God's wonders before every nation under heaven. And then for there is no other God nor ever was before nor shall be hereafter, but God, the father unbegotten and without beginning and whom all things began, whose are all things as we have been taught and his son, Jesus Christ, who manifestly always existed with the father before the beginning of time and the spirit with the father indescribably begotten before all things and all things visible and invisible were made by him. He was made man conquered death and was received into heaven to the father who gave him all power over every name in heaven and on earth and in hell so that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and God in whom we believe. And we look to his imminent coming again, the judge of the living and the dead who will render to each according to his deeds and he poured out his Holy Spirit on us in abundance, the gift and pledge of immortality, which makes the believers and the obedient in the obedient into sons of God and co-heirs of Christ, who is revealed. And we worship one God and the Trinity of holy name. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, th- that particular text is is interesting for a few different reasons. Um, first, uh, to me, because it's it's a mashup of. <laughs> of of Nicene Trinitarian theology and the way that that is, that was being developed um, over over the over the previous century, um, but it's it's a mashup of that with bits of uh, with the structure of what we would recognize as the Apostles' Creed now, and then mashing that up with Philippians two, the the giving him him. Uh, uh, power over every name in heaven and under earth mm-hmm. so that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Um, he, he's, he's, he's basically doing this, this confessional mashup. Um, but his, but he ends up by emphasizing so that the believers are sons of God and co-heirs of Christ. 
and we have the Holy Spirit. And, and that's, um, that particular reality is the one that I think sets up the move that he's making in his moment that you're pointing to. Mm-hmm. As sons of God, as heirs of Christ, um, as, as ones joined to King Jesus, who is king of earth, <laughs> who will judge all, mm-hmm. um, what does that mean? What does that mean in the here and now? Um, yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a there's a theological anchoring to to that to the way that he addresses his, the gospel in his moment as well. Mm, absolutely. I want to poke at this a little bit though. Uh, he he presents himself in in moments like that as uh, very confessionally orthodox. Um, it's another one of the ways that he appeals to the. Uh, the, the, the orthodoxy, I guess, of, of, of the British skeptics, mm-hmm. um, convincing them that, yes, as I plant churches over here, I am planting churches that are in harmony with um, the church universal. But there are also some moments in here where, at least from where we stand, um, he doesn't seem he, he, he doesn't seem to be matching those claims. Um, in particular, the moment when he uh, is attacked by Satan and then prays to Helios. What did you What did you make of that moment? Oh, interesting. I and honestly, I read right over that simply because I'm so accustomed in later medieval and Renaissance texts of you know some of the classical names you know by Jove meaning not only by Jupiter but also by Yahweh. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of took that sun there to be a, a honestly, a, a, you know, a a poetic renaming of God. But, I mean, if you take that as the name of a God distinct from the God of the Bible, that is certainly a problem that I, because I was reading so fast, I didn't even notice. Um, now, I, I think that, you know, part of what's going on here, and, and you'll notice this, listeners, if you read around in the patristics, is that, you really do kind of develop different regional responses to the demonic. Um, you know, I mean, what you read in St. Augustine is going to differ from what you read in the, um, oh, and I can't think of the, the, it's not the filioque, that's the and the sun clause, but the uh, <laughs> son of a gun, philokalia, there we go, okay. uh, of the <laughs> Eastern Church. <laughs> I'm like, I, I know that syllable's in there, I just can't remember what goes before and after it, but... Fill something. Yes, yes. Uh, the Philokalia is going to be different. Augustine's going to be different. St. Patrick's going to be different. And honestly, you know, it might just be that, you know, I was I was concentrating on the social realities here that I just kind of skimmed over that. So since you've paid a bit more attention to that, David, I mean, won't you go ahead and comment on that passage? Because I'm, I'm, I'm caught off guard here. Okay. <laughs> well, it, he's... He says that he was a uh, he was attacked by attacked by Satan, mm-hmm. um, and paralyzed, and then he says he, that he was he was permitted to, you know, as the sun was rising, um, he 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 found himself calling out Helios Helios, which is you know the 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 Greek sun god, all right, mm-hmm. the Greek the Greek name for the sun god. Um, at which point, when the sun touches him, he is, he's he is now able to move again. 
mm-hmm. um, it seemed to be some, some some kind of a paralysis that had struck him, and he a tri- and he immediately goes on to say that he felt that this was an example of the Holy Spirit working in us to pray as we ought when we don't know how to pray as we ought. Hmm. Okay. Um, which when I read, when, when I hit that, I thought that is extraordinarily weird. <laughs> <laughs> but then later on, uh, towards the, towards the end of the confession, mm-hmm. he talks about, he talks about the sun, um, at the, about uh, at the, at the end of time, um, by, uh, beyond any doubt in that day, in the last day, we will rise again in the brightness of the sun. That is in the glory of Christ Jesus, our Redeemer, mm-hmm. as children of the living God and co-heirs of Christ, made in his image, and we shall reign through him and for him and in him. For the sun we see rises each day for us at his command. But it will never reign, but mm-hmm. all who worship it will come wretchedly to punishment. We, on the other hand, shall not die who believe in and worship the true son, Christ, who will never die. Um, so that, that there's this, this moment later on uh, where he, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's this align, it's this way of speaking of Christ in the, in the language of son worship mm-hmm. that um, I, I think would probably strike uh, and even evangelicals these days as as incredibly alien that um, that didn't strike you as weird I guess because of because it seemed um, more period familiar I guess yeah yeah well I guess, I guess the other thing is and I just now looked at that passage again mm-hmm. I guess when I read it I just took this as you know him transliterating his actual call in ah. other words you know it's not sun god sun god but look the sun the sun Okay. <laughs> but, I mean, that said, I'm not saying that my reading is better than yours. I'm just saying that that's how I received yeah. it when I was reading through here, you know. Um, well, I, we can definitely say this is one of the ways in which this text is frustratingly uh, frustratingly limited in, mm. in, in, in its presentation. Like, what are you talking about? Why is this a good thing? <laughs> it doesn't look like that to me. Right, anyway. right. Anyway, uh, it's it's an interesting moment that's of its time, and I'm always I'm always particularly fascinated by those. Well, a couple of things led this led me to want to talk about this today. First, well, St. Patrick's Day, um, and we'd never done it before. Mm-hmm. But also the episode that y'all did with uh, with Todd about the novel Silence and mm-hmm. the ideas about martyrdom and persecution of Christians and getting kind of getting into the the, the details of that. Well, in in both um, the confession and the letter to the soldiers, uh, Patrick portrays himself and his converts as suffering for the name of Christ, not just suffering hardships. He talks about himself as suffering hardships and deprivation, but also suffering from the, the direct aggression um, of other people. Mm-hmm. What kinds of suffering are they enduring? And how does Patrick um, talk about that? What's his perspective on it? Well, I'm going to start with the epistle because the suffering there is interesting precisely because 
it's rooted in a very different set of political circumstances than you see in the New Testament. Again, in the New Testament, the lines are fairly clearly drawn between the persecutors and the persecuted. Uh, Mm -hmm. To find a dynamic of this sort in the Bible, you would really have to go to the Old Testament. You know, the prophet Nachum talks about this kind of a situation where one nation is betraying other nations into the hands of of the Babylonians. And therefore, God will not only judge the Babylonians, but God will also uh, judge the Edomites, for instance, who basically keep the Israelites from fleeing the Babylonians and therefore are complicit in it. Um, So in this epistle, the situation that Patrick narrates is one in which there are people who, basically under pressure from these barbarian raiders, um, and, you know, they, they seem basically to be gangsters. They're not all that interested in causing apostasy. Uh, they're mainly interested in finding the Christians because the Christians have cash. We can take the cash from the Christians, and therefore we can make more armies. Um, but these folks are betraying the locations of Christians. They are, in fact, leading the enemies towards the Christians. Uh, and the epistle here does not go to the persecutors directly, but to the cowardly Christians who, you know, uh, whether for personal gain or for self-preservation, are betraying their brethren into the hands of the picks. Mm. Now, the interesting thing about this is that, uh, again, because this is unprecedented in the Old Testament, or in the New Testament, pardon me, uh, as far as I know, Patrick is, you know, basically strip mining the language of the New Testament, you know, to make a theological case against this practice. Mm. Uh, So if you were in a sophomore biblical studies class, no doubt someone would say, well, he's proof texting. And, you know, because (laughs) I I am not, I am several years removed from being a sophomore in a biblical studies class, I'll say, well, of course he is. He doesn't have any other option. Um, You know, this is an unprecedented situation in the life of the Christian faith. And so he pulls phrases and sentences and images from the New Testament in order to deal with it. Mm. Now, the perspective that he takes on it is kind of what I, what I was talking about earlier. Um, so let's zoom in a little bit and see how that plays out in this particular moment. Uh, what Patrick is concerned with is letting these people know that, yes, indeed, they have much to fear from the picks. They have much to fear from their swords. They have much to fear from the death that they can inflict on themselves and their families. Uh, but ultimately, the lordship of Christ is such that this power that the barbarians wield over them is a temporary power that is to give way to the eternal power of Christ in the world. So in that respect, he is pulling from traditions like Hebrews, whose notion of faith is the substance of things unseen, Uh, Not in the way that, you know, the invisible woman from the Fantastic Four is unseen, but in the sense that we can't yet (laughs) see how the world could even be ordered this this way. But in faith, we confess that it will be because of the rule of Christ. He's pulling on traditions like um, the Sermon on the Mount, you know, where, uh, you know, Jesus says to the people gathered there, uh, you know, if if a sparrow falls to the ground and God knows of it, how much more so does God know of your misfortune, right? Mm. Uh, so in other words, you know, he is using phrases and words from the Bible 
He is framing it in terms of the ultimate lordship of Christ, and he is being really pastoral insofar as he's talking not to people who are complicit and comfortable and sitting in the lap of corrupt power, but people who are, you know, really in the in the path of these powers. You know, they're not the main concern, but they are useful for achieving the ends of these barbarian kings, and therefore mm. they suffer for it. Um, so it's interesting. I mean, I, you know... This didn't occur to me when I was reading it, but in some ways, what Patrick is doing here in this letter is, intellectually anyway, somewhat of a forerunner to what we know in the 20th and 21st centuries as liberation theology. It is hmm. theology from the perspective of the downtrodden, uh, not in order to demonstrate that God you know, deals even-handedly with oppressor and oppressed, but to say that you know, God has a long track record of favoring those who are downtrodden you are downtrodden so therefore take comfort in that mm. one of the things that's um important to understand in this in the, in the epistle is the the historical context that we laid at the beginning mm -hmm. um of of the waning of the empire uh, this is a situation that wouldn't have made sense to um the Apostle Paul or the other, you know, the, the other New Testament writers, the other apostles, because it would have imagined, it would have required them to imagine um, a, a post-apocalyptic Rome. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, I this mean is, in, in a very straightforward literary sense. Yeah, this, this is, the, you know, if you read the, you know, the biblical apocalypse, at least in part as referring to the end of the Roman Empire, this mm -hmm. is it. <laughs> Yeah, this is this is Mad Max, mm -hmm. right? And what's happening is that uh, the Rome's ability Rome was evil by many many measures, but there there there's there is still a there is still a good in in a, in in stable government even when. <laughs> <laughs> even when those in whose in whose hands uh, it, it are it, it is or not um, themselves, you know, always uh, you know always the best people. Right. Uh, or to put it briefly, remember Saint Paul wrote Romans thirteen while Nero was on the throne. Yes. Yeah. And you know, I mean, there, there's not even a Nero here to keep pirates from just showing up in your neighborhood and taking you captive. Yeah. You know, because this is, I mean, that's what happens that's what happened to Patrick. Right. Mm -hmm. And so what's happening now is, is, a, is, 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 is kind of reprisals. Um, people from, from Britain, apparently with the collusion of those who once represented, um, law and order. He's, you know, Caroticus, the, this named person, um, it, it's the lat. It's 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 a Latinate name. Um, I don't know whether he's translating it or, or or what. But you know, he seems to have soldiery. He seems to represent maybe some remnants of what had been the law, mm. but the law has now become lawless. There's no real distinction now between, um, you know, b b between the, the the marauders from outside civilization. And those who are tasked with with maintaining it, it's like the police, get, you know, decide that they're going to team up with the Hell's Angels, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know. Um, 
and one of the things they're doing in particular is uh, is kidnapping raids. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're they're raiding, uh, I guess, uh, probably coastal areas in Ireland, um, taking people captive, uh, returning uh, returning back to to Britain and even even the continent even the continental mainland, and selling um, these 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 captives as slaves, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, the, 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 the oppressed that, uh, that Patrick is identifying with here, um, well, one, he's identifying with the Irish themselves who were being taken as slaves, but he's not writing to the Irish. He's writing mm. to the British who find themselves in the awful position of being those whose former law and order is now... Um, you know, ha- has now degraded to this point. Um, what did what did you think about his his warrant um, his warrant for doing this? Um, we, you know, around election times, we you know sometimes you'll hear you know Christians talk about um, the the Christian role in in politics as being a prophetic kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the way you know the 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 Quaker phrase speaking truth to power, right? Um, is, would you see, prof- uh, would you see Patrick as doing that kind of thing in this epistle? I think that this epistle shed some interesting light on that tradition because so often when people talk about speaking truth to power, they at the very least assume, even if they never articulate a, a picture of temporal power, that's a little bit simplistic, honestly, mm-hmm. um, you know, as if the people, you know, that they target with their, you know, Facebook tirades, uh, <laughs> you know, and they're usually high-ranking officials of the political faction they don't like as much as the other. And uh, open letter to a person who isn't my Facebook friend. Yeah. Well, <laughs> um, but, you know, they, they seem to assume in the way that they frame things that these people have an autonomy that really doesn't play out if you look at the way that American government actually functions. Um, you know, with the possible exception of Supreme Court justices, but that's another rant that would take 15 minutes, so I'll spare our listeners that at the moment. Um, (laughs) But what's interesting about Patrick's epistle here is that he knows, and he says that he knows, that these people are in a situation where their families are in danger, their lives are in danger, their livelihoods are in danger. These picks don't mess around, you know. Uh, Mm -hmm. If you confront these people, they are going to kill you. And that is when Patrick says, uh, here's your martyrdom. Uh, you know, I mean, this is not going to be a glorious thing where there's going to be a chronicler standing by talking about how you made testimony to the creator of heavens and earth as they slowly, you know, called on you to recant your faith. But you're going to die in obscurity, you know. Uh, they're going to take you out on a boat. They're going to weigh you down. They're going to drop you down, drop you in the water. No one's ever going to hear of you again. But your life, and this is one of those lovely proof texts in here, your life is hidden in Christ. So, you know, it's a, it's a very, very different model of power from the sort of model of spectacle that you see in the more Mediterranean saints' lives. In those, it's all playing out in public. Uh, it's all playing out in a way that, you know, if you are faithful and if you, you know, refuse to recant, you become part of a glorious story. And honestly... 
you know, go, going back to our previous question, that's the sort of story that seduced Rodriguez in silence. Uh, mm. He thought that if he became a martyr in Japan, that's how he would be remembered by the church. Here, Patrick, I mean, it, it just has a, a gravelly realism to it. Uh, no, if you are faithful, you're going to die violently, probably in obscurity. It's probably going to kill your kids, too. Do it anyway. Yeah. I mean, and and, and everything, all he, he does offer a kind of consolation, but it's all theological. None of it yes, is... Yes, absolutely. None of it is in the drama of your of your story here. Right. Ain't you know? no arc of history and it ain't bending towards justice. Yeah. Well, it's, <laughs> this is <you> apocalyptic. <laughs> yeah. You shall reign with the apostles and prophets and martyrs and obtain the eternal kingdom. Yeah. That that's, that's, that's your, that's your reward. You know, a beautiful and well-beloved brethren and children, the wicked have prevailed over us. Right. And, and I mean, you're absolutely <laughs> right that, I mean, it is rooted entirely in a dogma of resurrection. Yes. Uh, and if you remove that dogma, then he is a madman. Or, you know, if you prefer St. Paul's words, he is uh, among all men most to be pitied. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's, <laughs> he's not post-mill, right? Yeah. Well, he, <laughs> yes, right. To, bring, to bring a very American term to bear on this. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, there, there's, there's nothing in the way he addresses that si- the situation that says, done properly, you know, all things will be done in earth as they are in heaven, and we're, we're moving in that direction. Um, it's, it's all very, um, look forward to the resurrection because that's when this all comes right. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm interested in the way he um, he frames it because he's I mean it's uh, because he's writing I mean, the Scots and the Picts are the ones who are who, who are doing these things but they're also being aided um, you know at the beginning it talks about these these soldiers of Caroticus mm-hmm. and he, and this letter is is aimed at them and also you know at the people who know them. And essentially what he's doing is he's using, um, he frames this at the beginning of the epistle as a, as a, as a disciplinary action by the church. Mm-hmm. I am a bishop. I hold the keys and I am cutting them off. Right, right. I, I am the one representing the true Lord of this realm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, don't listen to these gangsters. Listen to me because mine is the rightful authority. Yeah. And, you know, don't don't associate with them. Neither. Uh, he said don't eat with them. Don't drink with them. Do not mm-hmm. receive their alms until they do penance with tears. Yeah. And liberate the servants of God and the baptized ma- handmaids of Christ for whom he was crucified and died. Right. You know, it, 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 and he he's laying it out in these... You know, it's not just you guys are being mean. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's everything has this theological backdrop. You right. you are aiding and abetting. This this isn't just you know the Roman Empire is crumbling and times are tough and slavery is just the way things are. Um, Jesus died for this person who you are passively, um, who who you're being a a a, a passive. Uh, 
passively complicit mm. in 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 the abuse of them. Right. Um, and so he's he's using that um, ecclesiastical confronting confronting the the power of you know of of the city of man with the with the power of of the city of God essentially. Right. And and just to make another fourth century connection, since we've been doing a lot of that this episode, this is also the period where Gregory of Nyssa, o- over in, uh, it's not Nicaea, son of a gun, why am I blanking on regions today? Um, Cappadocia? Thank you, Cappadocia, <laughs> uh, yeah. is making, as far as I know of, the first systematic Christian argument that slavery is unacceptable for those who are baptized, that... Mm-hmm that the baptized believers cannot own slaves. Mm. So, I mean, it, it's fascinating that, you know, there Gregory is writing that here, Patrick is writing this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, again, I mean, you know, th- th- this is both for the, you know, the, the remnant of the Dan Brown cult who thinks that Christianity was basically invented to prop up Imperial power in the fourth century. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Except when it is undermining Imperial power left and right. Yeah. Um, and then also for the folks who think that, you know, everything that, you know, is written after the apocalypse of John ain't Bible and I ain't listening. Well, it actually takes some time to figure out what the implications of the Bible are. <laughs> yes. And that's important. Well, and, uh, you know, even, even down to the, it's, it's not just nasty letters. Uh-huh. Um, uh, and, and Patrick talks about this. Um, I want to say he talks about this in the confession too, or at least alludes to it. The idea, um, that Patrick and his um, those that he um, delegates for this would would go to these to these raiders and offer to purchase um, purchase back the prisoners of war. Mm-hmm. Um, offer to buy them back. Okay, if if you guys are in this for money, here's money. Let's buy. You know, can can we buy these people back? Right. And that's right. And that's uh, that's something I want to say that you that that that's seen in. Um, in in other uh, other other contexts uh, as well, um, in in this period, the church sending um, sending its 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 messengers to 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 purchase back those who've been taken as prisoners by various you know marauding marauding hordes and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and one more note that that's more regional than chronological. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that. Patrick uses in his appeal to these Christians is that you are selling or you are, you know, betraying fellow Christians into slavery and they're being enslaved, not by Romans, which would be bad enough, but mm-hmm. by these people who are patricides and fratricides and ravening wolves. Mm-hmm. And it, and it's fascinating because, you know, certainly not in this century, it's, it's several centuries later. Uh, but in the, you know, very Northern European poem, Beowulf, uh, the anxiety all the way through that poem is that various characters are kinsmen murderers. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I mean, again, I mean, that that seems to be a mark of the vice of the pagan in that region for centuries. Uh, you know, even to the point where, you know, Beowulf, in a move that sort of, you know, sets him off as the virtuous pagan, you know, sort of, confesses his life before he goes into battle with Grendel and saying, you know, I can stand before God with a clear conscience because I've never murdered my kinsmen. 
Mm-hmm. And I always joke with my students. I say, well, okay, you got that going for you. But, you know, that, <laughs> <laughs> that is, you know, something that uh, Christian writers in that region really do lay down for centuries as the mark of pagan violence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, and, and uh, you know, while we're, while we're going Anglo-Saxon, um, this resembles in, in, in some other ways, um, the, the sermon of, uh, the famous sermon of the, the Anglo-Saxon, uh, ninth or 10th century Anglo-Saxon cleric Wolfstan, mm-hmm. um, his sermon of the wolf to the English in which he, he castigates, um, his own countrymen for, for the buying and selling of, of their own fellow fellow countrymen not not just that they are related in terms of ethne and not just that they're people who you know come from their own or connected political identities but he also he's also emphasizing that you you are selling baptized people to heathen danes Mm -hmm. you know yeah and and again just to make this appeal again to our listeners uh, and honestly, if you've been listening to us long enough, you've heard us make this appeal before. But the reason that we study church history and the reason that we take it seriously is because the gospel of Christ really is an explosion in world history. Mm. It takes the human species centuries to grow into it. Yeah. And, you know, just because there were some people in the 16th century who decided to take a verse here and a verse there and say slavery is OK by us that doesn't negate the thousand years before that when it was anathema for a Christian mm-hmm. to own a slave. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There, the, there was, it, it was definitely a, a, a contentious, a contentious thing. And especially at these, uh, especially in these uh, kind of border areas where so often the situation of slavery is a, is not this institutional imperial practice, mm-hmm. but is but is part and parcel of the of the chaos of being in, you know, on the on the frontiers of of, of dying empires and rising kingdoms. Mm-hmm. Um, the othering of the slave that is permitted or is. Uh, no one, no one, no one can take shelter in that in this particular case. Mm-hmm. Um, no, no one had to be taught by a Christmas carol that the slave is our brother, right? Right, because the slave was our brother. He was like, like literally, like my, you know, my, you know, my cousin's cousin, you know, from a few villages over. Yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, I mean, so, but. Uh, Still, if if it's those kinds of things that help waken the conscience, um, you know, Patrick is moving it even further to say it's not just it's not just kinship; it's also these other kinds of connections that that join human to human and make this behavior monstrous. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, we have raced through the things that I think are interesting um, <laughs> in this text. Well, raced for a given value of raced. Um, what else uh, would you think is what do you what else would you like to bring out of this before we are done here? Well, like I said, and, and I, I touched on this earlier, but I want to dwell on it a bit more here. One of the things that you see, especially in the confession of Patrick, is a mode of Bible reading, mm. uh, not necessarily one that we should emulate, 
uh, but certainly one that we should be aware of as one of the live historical possibilities. And that is taking a historical moment that is really unprecedented in the New Testament and nonetheless bringing the text of the New Testament, which people, of course, would have been familiar with in their ears more than their eyes, uh, to make sense of it for the people on the ground. Uh, this is a practice that certainly has been abused. You know, the reason that we Americans, especially those who have been to Bible college and seminary, are so allergic to it is precisely our own history of slavery and of racial prejudice and bigotry. Uh, and we have good reason to be suspicious of that because our history points us that way. For the folks in St. Patrick's moment, those crimes were still a millennium in the future. They were in a moment where they were certainly facing a persecution as grisly and as threatening as the first century Christians did from the rising Roman Empire. Uh, and this mode of Bible reading uh, was something that, you know, I can see as a mode of survival in that moment. Mm. So it, it, it's, it's the tension that I, I, I feel like I'm always pointing to, but I think it's worth pointing to every time we do one of these episodes where Bible and history intersect with each other. Be aware of the ways that our sisters and brothers from previous centuries read that Bible. Realize mm. that it's an option and be prepared to give reasons why it would be a better or a worse option for our own historical moment. David, what do you got? I like that. I'd like to I'd like to to spin off of that and look at a per, at a particular a particular part of the confession. So this is about halfway through uh, about halfway through the confession and he's starting to frame his mission uh, to the Irish within the scriptural uh, commands uh, to the apostles to to go forth and uh, uh, to to go forth and make disciples uh, to to all the ends of the earth. So what he what he does, and you know this plays into what you were saying, Nathan, about. Uh, about the ways that he's reading scripture is that he's very, he's very pointedly saying what I'm doing at this moment is what these texts are talking about. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So in Ireland, um, through me, many people were reborn to God and soon after confirmed and clergy were ordained everywhere. And the mass, the masses lately have come to belief whom the Lord drew from the ends of the earth, just as he once promised through the prophets, to you shall the nations come from the ends of the earth and shall say, Our fathers have inherited naught but lies, worthless things in which there is no profit. And again, I have set you to be a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the uttermost ends of the earth. And I wish to wait then for his promise, which is never fulfilled, just as it is promised in the gospel. Many shall come from east and west and shall sit at table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, just as we believe that believers will come from all the world. And then, uh, skipping, he says, in, in Hosea, he says, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and those not beloved, I will call my beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they shall be called sons of the living God. Okay, mm -hmm. so in, in Hosea, it's not talking about the Irish. 
<laughs> not remotely. Right. Um, in Hosea, it's not even talking about Gentiles generally. That's that's an expansion of the of the principle in the text, um, an application of it, a, a fuller sense of it that you see developed by Paul in the New Testament. All right. Um, in in Hosea, the context is that God has declared Israel not His people, and there will be a time when those He said were not His people, He'll call His people again. You know, in in the context in 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 the context, these these texts aren't necessarily specifically talking about Patrick here and now, but Patrick is is encouraged, I think, by the way the New Testament reads the old to then see his own moment as participating in that. He doesn't see the New Testament era as this kind of special moment in which the Spirit was working to bring these things to fulfillment, but rather that he continues to live in that moment, and he gets to be one who continues the the apostolic mission, who is kind of at the frontier of prophecy, as it were. Mm. You know, as, as if... Uh, as if this prophecy is work is spilling out historically and geographically, and he's seeing these things that Hosea talked about and Isaiah talked about and all the rest of it. He's seeing these things coming to be around him in ways that the New Testament prepares him to see it. Um, I think that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Well, how would you recommend that our celebrations of St. Patrick Day uh, occur if these texts are shaping our notion of Patrick? <laughs> well, first of all, I want to say that, you know, the sort of national celebration in the United States of America of St. Patrick's Day really does have to do with 19th century, 19th century realities. I don't mm-hmm. think we should diminish that in the slightest because... It really is a testament to the fact that we had a brutal, bloody, violent moment in our own history, uh, and we are aware of it, and we continue to live forward trying to do better. So, Mm. first of all, I don't want to diminish that at all. Um, That said, if I could add something to that, uh, I would say that, you know, one of the things that believers probably should learn from the writings of the historical Patrick are precisely that we we stand our best chance of living faithfully not not only in moments when our people are in power but also in moments when our people have gone back to Rome to fight Attila the Hun if we keep that strong theological grounding in the resurrection that we see in Patrick's writings so drink your green beer if your contract doesn't forbid it uh, <laughs> wear your green shirt or orange if you want to insist on your Protestantism but also remember that all of those things can become idolatry if we don't couch them in that framework of the resurrection. Mm. And I would say St. Patrick's Day is about Ireland, but it's not just about how great it is to be Irish, but how great it is that the gospel came to the Irish, and how great it is that one day that 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 eschatological vision that Patrick saw himself playing out in is is going to spill out throughout all of the earth and you know 
be part of it. Support your local Patrick and your Patrick's overseas. <laughs> Very good. Well, what it, uh, I assume next time will be jets and yes, uh, yes, and I... and beach volleyball and <laughs> and that awesome pin flipping thing that Bell Kilmer does. Yes, I think it will be Top Gun. Although last time I thought it was too. So uh, listeners should note my inability to uh, prognosticate with any precision. <laughs> awesome. Well, dear listeners, if you have any questions or comments that have arisen uh, out of our, our discussion of Patrick, if you're familiar with these texts and there's something awesome that we've neglected to dwell on uh, with the justice we ought, uh, send us emails, uh, thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can also comment on the show notes uh, when those post on our blog, christianhumanist.org. You can also uh, send us a message on our Facebook page. You can like our Facebook page and follow us there. Also, you can, uh, if you like the show, please please give us good ratings on uh, iTunes. iTunes U is one of uh, the main ways that people find us, and good ratings means people are more likely to find us, and we think that's a good thing. Yes, indeed. Well, dear listeners, I wish you all grand weeks. The Christian Humanist Podcast is a show on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic, and our audio editor is Amberly Copeland. I, on behalf of Nathan Gilmore and the absent Michael Farmer, am David Grubbs, and I wish, uh, I wish you all grand weeks, and uh, we'll leave you with good advice from Martin Luther. Let your sin be strong, but let your faith be stronger. <laughs>